Please remain standing for the gospel lesson, which is taken from John chapter 1, beginning at verse 43. Hear now the gospel of the Lord. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can any good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, today is Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost is the day on which the church around the world and through the centuries celebrates the coming of the Spirit. Um, The Spirit that is gloriously poured out by the Christ whose ascension we celebrated last week. And so every year it's Ascension, then Pentecost. And what we're going to look at today is something of the, uh, the black backdrop for Pentecost, or what I'm calling the anti-Pentecost. And that's the story of Babel, the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11 which was, of course, our Old Testament reading today. This text is a traditional Old Testament reading for the day of Pentecost. It's been in the church's lectionary as this reading for this day. And that shows you that the church has historically grasped the connection between Babel, this project at Babel, and Pentecost. So we'll look at this under three headings. The project which is in verses 1 through 4. This is Genesis chapter 11. The project, verses 1 through 4. The inspection, which is in verses 5 through 7. And the judgment, the judgment in verses 8 and 9. So it's the project, the inspection, and the judgment. First, The project, Genesis chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. This is to be expected for a while after the flood, because that's where we are right after the flood. For at least a little while, there would be a common language. And so we have a time in history where there's one speech. And interestingly, this belief, in a universal common language was not restricted to the Israelites. 
just like there are flood narratives among all the ancient peoples of the world. Almost every single culture in the world has a flood narrative, a story of some global deluge, just like the Noahic flood in the book of Genesis. So when it comes to this language situation, the Sumerians, those are the people of ancient Babylon, they built the city of Sumer, S-U-M-E-R, Uh, And the city they built, Summers, probably near the lower regions of the Tigris and Euphrates in what is today southern Iraq. The Sumerians, they have a story of the earth having one language. And that one language being broken up by the god Enki. Apparently because Enki got into a rivalry with another god named Enil. And so there's nothing surprising about this at all, if in fact the story is true. We would expect other cultures around Israel to have part or some version of the story. It's actually an encouraging thing. But the difference, or one of the differences anyway, between Genesis and the Sumerian account is that in Genesis there's no polytheistic rivalry between the gods. And that rivalry sort of results in a diversity of languages. In Genesis, it's the one God who is unrivaled, who in a moral judgment for the sake of man, for his own sovereign free purposes, it is he who breaks the languages up. And so one of the things that's probably happening here in this Tower of Babel text is a criticism of this ancient Babylonian tradition about the diversity of languages. And this is a criticism that goes right at the heart of the ancient world. Babylon, at this time, as she would become much later, was the heart of the ancient world, the center of power. And this idea of criticizing the Babylonian culture is made even more plausible in the text by the fact that the event takes place, you can see this in verse 2, in the land of Shinar. Shinar is the ancient city of Babylonia. And so we're set up. The writer here carefully sets us up to read the text as a judgment text on ancient Babylonian idolatry. Verse 2 says, To get to this plain of Shinar... They journeyed east. It's another hint that we have a judgment narrative. Adam and Eve were expelled east of Eden. Cain was condemned to wander in the land of Nod. Genesis 4 tells us east of Eden. East is the direction of exile. And so the the men in this text, the peoples, were not given their precise identity. They're moving, the text says, east to Shinar. And so verse 3 tells us they, they said to one another. That is, they spoke to each other. Notice, their ability to speak to and to understand one another is crucial to the project they want to undertake. We often take this for granted, I think. But a common language is a crucial building block for all cultural labor. It's so crucial, it's sort of like air. We forget about it. 
I remember uh, years ago flying into Tokyo and wandering through the airport where absolutely everything was in Japanese. And of course, I couldn't read it, and it was very disorienting. There's no point of contact, no ability to navigate even the most basic tasks. Now, I had been in a land of strange tongues before that, but that was called Texas. <laughs> this was a whole new deal. And I remember being strangely comforted by the fact that the cab driver, I got into a cab, was listening to a Japanese baseball game. I thought, oh, I can, I can kind of figure out what's going on on the radio. And, and the work that we had to do with the Japanese company, Hitachi, uh, was made terribly difficult by the language barrier on both sides. And without people on our side who spoke Japanese and theirs that spoke English, the work's impossible. You can't do it. We don't often think about this, as I said, but one of the great hindrances to human dominion, to human flourishing, to human peace across the globe is the various and quite formidable language barriers. Language barriers are cultural barriers. Hundreds and hundreds of languages means man's original task to subdue the earth is now made quite difficult. Think of the Wycliffe Bible translators. Just to get the scripture to some of these tribes, you need a horde of people with PhDs in linguistics to work their whole life just to tell them the gospel. The division of the languages is an enormous kind of task and it makes man's original calling more difficult. So we have to devise these complex ways to overcome the barrier. In the ancient or medieval Christian world, it was a common cultural language. It was the language of Latin, which if you're doing business or you were in academia or you were professional, you had to learn Latin in addition to your own local language. And in much of the modern world, English functions much the same way. And if you don't have this language, well, then what do you do? You have to develop translation technologies like they use at the UN. Or when a president entertains a head of state who doesn't speak English. These are wonderful things, of course, and, and the Lord uses them to bless the nations, to enable cooperation. But they are also a tax. They're a result, if you will, of the confusion of languages by the judgment we see here in this text, and we often forget that. So the text says, they spoke to one another and said... Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They're excited. They have a sense of urgency. There's also something of the grandiose nature of their plans starting to seep through the text. And the, and the author uh, comments on the technology used at the end of verse 3. They, they used, the text said, brick instead of stone. So they didn't have stone, they used brick. And they used tar for mortar. So, here Moses is saying, 
he's pointing out that they used kiln-fired brick instead of stone and then some type of a tar-like substance for mortar. Because the plains of southern Mesopotamia had no stone available. And quarrying and transporting the stone would be very expensive, even if you could find it somewhere. On the other hand, in Israel, the foundations of buildings would eventually be made from stone. And the superstructure would be mud brick. They didn't, in Israel, they didn't develop a burned brick technology because it wasn't necessary. So this, this little note here in the text is actually a historically accurate and astute observation about the house-building technologies of the time and of the region. And again, there's probably a hint of sarcasm here. This text is full of word plays in the original language, little sarcastic digs. They used brick instead of stone. That is, they had to use materials which would decay, materials which by their very use speak of the fleeting, fragile nature of the project. They didn't even have stone, the writer is saying. So they, used, they had to use brick. And so in verse 4, they say, again, they're excited, come, let us build ourselves a city. And this gives us a hint of the, uh, the megalomania these builders had. It's come, let us make bricks, let us build ourselves a city. And later they say, in verse 4, that we may make a name for ourselves. And so they are as builders and architects often are, seeking fame and renown, which is a false substitute for actual immortality. But if it's all you've got, then it's all you've got. But only God gets to make a name for himself in Scripture. And he can and he does in his mercy make the names of his chosen people great. He says to Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. He says to David, I will make your name great. There's really nothing wrong with the aspiration of the builders here toward human greatness. There's nothing wrong with a certain kind of sanctified ambition or a desire to do great things. But it has to be deployed in service to the Lord God and to people made in His image. This is why Jesus says, He among you who desires to be the greatest should become the servant of all. Jesus doesn't say, hey, forget desires for greatness. He says, look, desires for greatness are fine, but they have to be bent to service. So it's more than just egoism, though, in the text. And also, probably, there's a commentary here on the fact that the technology, as it always tends to do, has become Lord and not servant. Even from the beginning, men do stuff because they can. But there's more at play here. You can see it in the middle of verse 4. They want to build a tower in the city whose top is in the heavens. And that tells you right away, this is not a purely secular project. This tower is a Mesopotamian ziggurat. And a ziggurat is a pyramid-like structure with a stairway up to the top. And at the summit of it 
would be a place for the gods to come and rest. And so a ziggurat was a stairway to heaven, a literal stairway to heaven, a link between heaven and earth. Of course, the top wouldn't literally be in the heavens. That's a figure of speech in the text. Much like we, we speak of a skyscraper. It, it doesn't actually scrape the sky. But the religious significance of the structure, the architecture, is that it links God and man. It bridges the distance, if you will. And so we have another attempt to become like God in this text. Cities from the beginning, and, and this often is just under the, the surface life of the city, there are places of spiritual yearning. There are places of seeking the transcendent. People often go to cities seeking some vague, unknown something more, something transcendent. And from the beginning here, this is a city building project that is seeking to make a link with the gods, to get into contact with the spiritual world. Of course, these things are distorted by sin, but they are there present even in modern cities. The city unleashes human potential. Come, come together. Let us, let us build this fantastic thing. Right? Let us build these towers, these buildings. Let us build the highest building in the world. Let us have the biggest this and the brightest that. And that's true. Cities will unleash human potential. It's difficult to reach your full potential if you're living in some backwater place and the people at your craft are not available. And of course, that's why cities have many, many benefits. But sin mars this kind of unleashing of human potential. And this is why cities have all these vicious side effects and all of these bleak, grim underbellies and all of these intractable problems. Right? Modern cities are just as much architectural temples to their gods. Go look at the landscapes of, of cities a few hundred years ago, and what are the biggest buildings in the cities? They used to be the churches, right? Now they're business towers, monuments to the new gods, namely the gods of money and status and power. City builders are always building temples to their gods, even to this hour. They always have, and they always will. It's part of the human condition to seek the transcendent, but if you seek it, fallen, you end up building temples to money and power and fame and, and human glory. And so there's some wonderful things about cities. Seekers go to cities. Talented people go to cities because cities unleash human potential. But it turns out in a fallen world, cities don't often deliver on their promises. There's a wonderful work on this, if you're interested. The great French uh, reformed uh, sociologist, lawyer, professor, theologian, a wonderful uh, man named Jacques Ellul. Jacques Ellul was part of the French resistance to the Nazis. He taught at uh, Bordeaux in France for many decades. Anyway, Ellul wrote 50, 60, 70 books maybe, but he has a fabulous volume called The Meaning of the City, which teases this stuff out. 
So, it's an urban building project. They want to build a stairway to heaven. Later on, the prophet Isaiah would say to the king of Babylon, that is the king of this very region, he would say to the king of Babylon, you say in your heart, or you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars to God, I will set my throne. I will make myself like the Most High. You know, that Babylonian spirit, it goes back to this very text. It's rooted in the heart of man. Again, there's a good way to be like the Most High. God wants us to reflect His image. But there's also a perverse way to do that. And so this is a temple city. It's a, it's a, it was to be a sanctuary like Eden was. It was a new central tabernacle for the world. That's what the builders wanted to do here. But here's the problem. After the fall, God barred the way back to Eden. There's no getting back to Eden. And God says He's going to establish a new central temple city for the nations in Jerusalem in His due time. But city builders, ancient and modern, armed with their technology, they want to cross these God-established boundaries. They want complete, alternative, self-sufficient civilizations. Isn't that a good deal of what a city's about? Complete self-sufficiency? Right? You can walk downstairs from your apartment and at 2 o'clock in the morning eat 27 different kinds of food. It's com- the, the, the goal here is a complete, alternative, self-sufficient civilization. And when it's expressed in some contexts, you can see it's completely utopian. All of these back-to-the-garden images, which we hear from our politicians, don't we? Worlds of perfect peace and perfect fairness and perfect justice. There's no going back to Eden. This doesn't mean we can't build cities. I'll say more about this later. But what we can't build is utopian cities. There's no going back to Eden. The only way is forward. And And the forward, centralized, unified future is the city of God. Ultimately, the new Jerusalem. God is the great city builder. And he's not going to brook any rivals. Again, this does not mean we are to despise cities. Far from it. When Israel is carried off into exile by the Babylonians, you know what God tells them through Jeremiah the prophet? He says, you're going going into exile in Babylon. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to seek the welfare of the city into which you are exiled, for in its welfare will be your welfare. We seek the common good of all cities, even Babylonian idolatrous cities. And then he tell, Jeremiah tells the exiles in Babylon, look, this is, this is what you should do. Uh, build houses. Plant vineyards. Marry. Live in the land. Seek the common good. Nevertheless, you should know what you're up against. <laughs> this is a statist, statist, idolatrous project to bring God down and lift man up. That's, that's the, the purpose of the city. Let us build a city with a tower so we can make a name for ourselves could be the very motto of much modern urban planning. 
And the reason for the project, another reason, is given at the end of verse 4. Lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. This is interesting because what, if you remember in Genesis 1, what God told man to do was to scatter. And after the flood in Genesis 9, he said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Men are supposed to scatter because there's no going back to the Edenic utopian city. So God spreads us out in the earth. But this is an alternative project. It says we don't want to be scattered. We want centralization. We want security. So there's two things notice in the text. One is hubris. Let us make a name for ourselves. But the other is a kind of fear. Lest we be scattered. There's a kind of fear that's driving the city builders here. This is another place where we can see the good of cities, which, is, which we now have to live with in a sort of mutated, fallen form. Cities can be places of refuge. Right? They can be places of community they don't, where people don't want to scatter, where they want to gather. But again, we live with these things in a marred and fallen state. In fact, we know from modern urbanization that all of this centralization of cities without God actually destroys true community. Isn't it ironic? People come to the city because they don't want to be scattered. But it turns out now that folks ironically flee to the city for anonymity. There is no loneliness like modern urban loneliness. And so, sure, can you find community and city and refuge in the city? Yes, but you'll find a lot of dark underbelly stuff. You'll find a lot of eroding of human community in the city as well. Cities that are built on this pattern efface our true humanity because they're trying to create an alternative city to the city of God. And this is the irony. When you cut oneself off from God, you always end up cutting oneself off from man. But banishing God leaves men with nothing substantial to bind themselves to one another. So they're afraid of being scattered in the text. It's as if men sense an almost intuitive kind of foreboding that scattering apart from God, would mean some kind of disintegration. So they cluster together. The great Irish poet Yeats says, things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. Men don't want that. They don't want to be scattered, so they build cities. And these cities have marvelous advantages. Lots of wonderful things. But they can't deliver on what's attempted here. They cannot deliver. They cannot get back to Eden. But they all have in them something of the seeds of this. Even if the men don't recognize it, don't confess it, or would even deny it. City building is a kind of Edenic project. As one songwriter put it, Let's hear a laugh for the man of the world who thinks he can make things work.
tried to build the New Jerusalem and ended up with New York. Now, New York's an impressive city if you're, the, if you're that type of person who likes New York. But it's not too impressive at all if you set it in the context of the New Jerusalem. So that's the project. The second point is the inspection. And here the story reaches this ironic complex uh, climax in verse 5. The Lord comes down to see the city. They wanted to reach up to the heavens, but God, it's as if God says, all right, all right, I, I, I get it. I'll come down and take a look. I have to come down just to find this thing. Your great, big, big, big city that you built, your, your, your twin towers, all right. I'll stu- I'll, I'll, I'm sure I can find them. Give me a minute. So he, but God has to bend himself down. And that's, that's the text. The text means that in the Hebrew. It's, it's, it's this almost funny way that the words are used to say the Lord came down to, to take a look at it. He's mocking them. I used to have to fly uh, to Austin on a lot of business. And when you got into northern Texas, you could see the whole uh, Dallas-Fort Worth metroplex area, you know, some three-point-something million people. The whole thing, I remember thinking, it looks like a little toy playset. You know, it, 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 the, our projects are very big in our own eyes, right? But they're often puny in the sight of the transcendent Lord. Isaiah says that the nations are nothing and less than nothing compared to God. The, their inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He lifts them up like sand. So they build the tower so the gods could come down, but they didn't want this God to come down. And God's coming down here is an act of judicial inspection. He's not coming for a cultural exchange. He's, going to, he's the building inspector. Because he's the great cosmic architect and builder of all things. And he wants to take a look at what they built. And he doesn't really like what he sees. And so he says in verse 6, If as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this, nothing they plan will be impossible for them. So again, they've become grand central planners. Permanent bureaucrats. But the Lord has to kind of cut the project off at the root. Nothing, he says, will be impossible for them. And that, and that language, it doesn't mean that God feels threatened or that he's even being peevish. This is a merciful judgment. This judgment here is an act of merciful preservation. It's the same language God used in Eden when, it, when after men sinned, he said they can't eat from the tree of life. Not because God was afraid, but because he said, well, now they'll be confirmed in evil if I let them eat from the tree of life. So, God does not want this idolatrous centralization to succeed because it destroys human flourishing. He scattered men so they could cultivate the whole world. And there's another lesson here, and it's this. Unity and peace that's being sought here by the city builders, unity and peace are not ultimate goods. They are not ultimate goods. Better division. Better division and judgment than collective apostasy. Right? So, so the answer to the question, can't we all just get along, is no. Not 
if we're forced to become idolaters. And so in verse 7, the Lord says, Come, let us go down and confuse their language. The us here is he's probably speaking to his angelic court. And the word for confuse means to mix up. It's ironic because it's almost identical to the words used for make bricks in verse 3. And so the Lord is saying something like this. You want to mix up some bricks? Okay, I will mix up your ability to communicate on the project. Now, he could have simply toppled the tower, right? But towers can be rebuilt. That doesn't get to the heart of the problem. In fact, in this region, in southern Iraq, 30-plus ziggurat structures have been uncovered by archaeologists. So not only can towers be rebuilt, towers like this were rebuilt. But the end result in verse 7 is that they won't understand each other's speech. They, we started the text with the simple phrase, they spoke to one another. At the end, this simple thing, they spoke to one another, is impossible. And that brings the judgment, the, the third point, the judgment. So verse 8, again, this is ironic that God uh, scatters them abroad over the face of the earth. This is precisely what they feared. In verse 4, let us build a city lest we be scattered. And then the text says they gave up the project. They stopped building the city. They ceased. No common language. No city. And finally, the text comments on the significance of the city in verse 9. Therefore, it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. The Babylonians called the city Babel, which for them meant gate of the gods. That's the purpose of the tower. It's a gateway to the gods. But the word Babel here ironically means to confuse or to mix up. They mixed up bricks, God mixed up their language. So again, the author is saying, look, they think Babel means gateway to the gods, but it really means mixed up confusion. <laughs> they think New York is the new Jerusalem. The delis might be great, but don't be confused about this. This is how we use the word today when we say he or she was just babbling, right? It comes from this. And from this point on in the Bible, Babel becomes a term for human pretension, for sin and superstition and wealth and pride. In Revelation, it means this anti-Christian order that began with the Roman Empire. And what, is it, what it says about Babel is Babel's sins, not its building projects, but its sins are the only thing that reached up to heaven. If you want to erect something really high that reaches to heaven, human beings already have that. It's their sins. So, how does all this relate to Pentecost? Well, it starts with seeing Jesus, believe it or not, as Jacob's ladder. Um, remember in John 1, which was the gospel lesson, that's why the gospel lesson is the gospel lesson that it is today. In that text, Jesus tells Nathaniel, <clears throat> you will see heaven opened. 
and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Remember, Jacob had his dream, and he saw a ladder stretching between heaven and earth, and angels ascending and descending on it. Jesus comes, and he tells Nathanael, I'm that ladder. I am the stairway to heaven. And so in his divine human person, as the God-man, he is the only unique link between heaven and earth. His body is the new temple. And so when we call Jesus Christ God and man, the mediator, we are making a politically subversive statement. It says there is no other way, not architecture, not art, not politics, not government, not nothing to get from earth to heaven because Christ is the unique mediator. He's the stairway. He's the link. There are wonderful human goods. They should be celebrated and enjoyed, but they cannot be turned into idols. He is the latter. This is an anti-statist manifesto from Jesus. He has come down as God and this text comes down. He's come down to take a look at our folly. And then he is born the divine judgment of God that was our due. There are lots of religions in the world where gods come down, go up and come down and fly around and do all sorts of things. Come down and take a look at human folly. They even participate in human folly. But there are none where the God, man, comes down and is crucified for the sake of human folly. Takes human folly on himself. Not only that, Jesus is the appropriate language or speech of the Father. He's the Word of the Father. He unites and He gives meaning to all other speech. Human speech is a reflection of Him who is the Word the language of God. And so God's great building project is centralized in Him and no one and no place else. And that's why when that Christ ascends and He pours out His Spirit, as we saw uh, in, in throughout various texts in the Old, we didn't read it today, but uh, one of the readings for today is Acts chapter 2. And you know what happens there. The language barriers are broken down. They all hear the praise of God in their own languages. That means Pentecost is the undoing of Babel. That's an express reference in the book of Acts to this text here in Genesis. Babel with its confusion and its division and its scattering is the anti-Pentecost. Now, in the New Covenant, the Spirit of Christ allows one gospel to go forth to many nations in their various languages and unites them into one body as brothers and sisters, one body of Christ, the one civilization of God. Have you ever thought about how just from an institutional, sociological point of view, how stunning a thing the church of Jesus Christ is? There are no other institutions like it. There are no empires. There's nothing. They all faded. The world's longest empires collapse and crumble. And yet there's this thing. It's visible. You can touch it called the church. And it has people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every century. And it endures. I mean, we're not just making the thing up. 
it turns out that the scattering judgment, what I call the merciful preservation of God in, in Genesis 11, that scattering, was indeed a judgment, but a merciful judgment. It allows the greater unity which we're experiencing today. We're still scattered. We still have our own local languages. But now all local languages are blended in a symphony of international praise in the one spirit, through the one mediator, to the one God, in the one temple of the church. The confusion of the tongues has turned out to serve the polyphonic praise of God by every tribe, every tongue, every nation, in every land. And then we move to the end of history in the book of Revelation when this final Babylonian complex, this anti-Christian empire falls, we see that the true city of God descends. It comes down out of heaven. We don't build it up. It comes down. In one sense, this project, like a lot of human striving, is a repudiation of grace. It's not that God doesn't want men to have a wonderful city. He does. But it comes down. It's given. Even as Christ comes down in the incarnation. Even as the Spirit comes down at Pentecost. In the book of Revelation, the city descends. And those who overcome are given a new name. Remember in this text, they wanted to make a name for themselves. But we are not to make a name for ourselves. God will make your name great. He will make you like himself. He will give you a name. And John says the name that the overcomers are given is the name of the city of my God. So God scatters and he confuses in our text for his grand redemptive purpose. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Pentecost triumphs and undoes Babel. And human cities, for all of their gifts, still stand under judgment. And they're destined to give way to the enduring city of God. Praise the Lord. Amen.